Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Jason Freed. Hi Jason, how are you? Good Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, very well sir, very well indeed. So Jason, my first question as I like to ask the guests on the show is what do you like to be known for? Me personally? Yeah. Or the company? You. you. Um, I, what, am I, what do I like to be known for? I mean, I hope that I'm a thoughtful person who, who is patient and, uh, and listens to all sides and, and comes up with, with a good idea. You know, I, I think that that's, that's something I've, I've tried to evolve into, and um, uh, that's what I'd like to be known for. Coming up with good ideas. I like that. That's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. That's a good legacy to have, I think. Coming up with good ideas, but but I think also um, uh, knowing knowing how to to break something down into its individual bits, so you can reassemble it into a simpler, you know, um, clearer ultimate product. That, that I think is a big thing because you can come up with a lot of ideas. Uh, a lot of people come up with ideas. A lot of people make stuff, but a lot of it's too complicated. And and I, I really want to work against that and really work towards. Clear things, simple things that make a lot of sense to a lot of people. So a lot of people will probably know you for 37 Signals, um, which is a company that you co-founded. What's the origin story of 37 Signals? Where did, how did it come to be? 37 Signals started in 99. Uh, I actually had two other partners. Um, and I'll, I'll go back a little before that so you have a sense of, of how it got going. Um, I was doing freelance web design on my own. I graduated from college in 96, so from 96 through about 98 or so, I was just working on my own. Um, and around 98, I think it was, I started getting, or started getting a little bit tired of working on my own. And I was thinking about maybe I should go get a job somewhere for a while and see how that works. So I interviewed in a few spots and, and met this one guy named Ernest Kim, who was the creative director at Organic Online, which is a, a big or, uh, web design firm nationwide. Um, but this is in the Chicago office where I live. And I really, really liked Ernest. He was awesome. We, we saw eye to eye in a bunch of things, but I didn't like the job. I didn't want the job after thinking about it, but we kept in touch. And then a year or so later, he, he ended up leaving organic. He was feeling like organic wasn't the place for him anymore. He didn't want to work at a big, huge shop anymore. He wanted to do his own thing. I still wanted to do my own thing, but I wanted to do it with someone else. And we had a mutual friend, a guy named Carlos Segura, who was a graphic designer, a uh, really, really good graphic designer, but he hadn't done any web stuff, and he was looking into getting into web design. So we all three paired up and started 37 Signals together in, I think it was August of 1999, and that's how it all got started. Where does the name come from? The name comes from um, Carlos, who's one of the partners. He was uh, he was watching a show on um, on public broadcasting in the U.S. called Nova, I think. They may show it all over the world. I'm not sure. But um, Nova's a science show, and they were talking about the SETI project, which is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I guess there's a bunch of radio telescopes, I think somewhere in New Mexico, listening for signs of, of life in space. And apparently, um, at the time, they'd, they'd analyzed millions or billions of different signals, you know, noise and space and whatnot. And out of all those signals, um, there were 37 signals that were unexplained. And that were signs of potential intelligent life. And the show talked about that. And he just it just stuck in his head, 37 signals. That's really cool. And we didn't have a name. Uh, and uh, we talked about names. And we just couldn't come up with anything interesting. And so he brought that up and said, hey, I heard this thing. Love the story. Cool name. What do you think? And we, we loved it. So we went with it. 
it's it's cool, right? And as well, when you get a name like that, I mean, it's probably more important now, but things are available. Domains are available. Twitter handles are available. But it probably wasn't an issue in 99 as, as such. Yeah. Well, you know, we looked at a few other names. I don't remember what they are or what they were, but some of them were taken. Domain names were taken. You know, Twitter didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. But then domain, domain names were taken. So we... We uh, were really happy when we came up with an obscure, unusual name with letters and numbers in it because that was easy to get. Does it feel kind of crazy saying now about a company, um, a web company, Twitter and Facebook didn't exist? When, when you, like you're working at a company that is creating products now on the web, but you say like throughout your company's history, those tools didn't exist. There aren't a lot of companies around today where that's the case. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're old. Uh, we've been in business for you know almost fifteen years now, and um, I think Facebook was. It's funny. Facebook launched, I think, officially February fourth or fifth of two thousand four, which was the same day that Basecamp launched our our most popular product. So that was quite a day for us um, and and for Facebook. Um, and Twitter, I guess, is maybe seven years old or something like that. I'm not exactly sure how old they are now. But, yeah, I mean, we, we've been around for a while. Uh, we've seen a lot of things. Um, but we're, we're really big fans of, um, of being in this for the distance, going the distance, the long run, trying to build a business that's around for 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, that's what's interesting to us, which puts us in a unique position in our industry because a lot of people in our industry are interested in building Things for the short term, flipping, doing another thing, yeah. building it, flipping, that sort of thing. And that's just, it's fine. That's what they're up to. But for us, that's not what we're interested in. And we don't think that that's um, how you build something that's lasting and important. So we want to be in it for, for as long as we can be. So my understanding is that you you started with web development of 37 Signals, but then started creating your own sort of tools, your own like project management and productivity tools internally. Is that correct? That's right. So we were a web design firm. And we started getting really busy in 2003 or so, and we needed a better way to present work to clients and to get feedback from clients and share stuff with clients and uh, also organize our own internal work, you know, tasks and stuff. And, you know, at the time, there was nothing out there that was any good for what we wanted to do. There was Microsoft Project. There was some other stuff. I think something called E-Project was out. And <laughs> there just weren't – these tools were were fine if you wanted to broadcast information, but we weren't interested in broadcasting. We were interested in back and forth. We were interested in a conversation and collaboration, which is about communication and those things. And there just wasn't anything that was good. So we built our own uh, in, to use internally. And then we used it with clients and they kept asking us, what is this thing? Where'd you get this thing? And we said, we made it you know, for ourselves. And they kept saying, we want it. And so the light bulb goes off and you say, hey, maybe there's a product here. And so we polished it up and gave it a name called Basecamp and put it out on the market in February 2004 nearly 10 years ago now. And um, about a year later, it was doing more business for us than our web design work. So we stopped doing web design work and we just have ever since been doing uh, software. Like you mentioned that like clients and stuff were, were interested. Like at what point do you decide, okay, let's let's change what we do and we'll release this product. Like we'll make it ready for prime time. We'll iron out the bugs that we're happy with to use internally and we'll make it a, a real thing, and we'll change our business. Like, how does a decision like that come to be made? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't like that, really. It was. We decided to try it. Basically, it, it wasn't a decision to change our business. Um, it was a decision that we built this thing. 
Um, I'd built products before, before uh, 37 Signals. I, I'd made a few products of my own, software products, and I've always loved the idea of making software and selling it and putting it online or putting it somewhere and having people download it and like it and buy it and use it. And I'm talking download because this is before the internet um, was really, before like not the internet, but before software as a service was popular. More back in the in the mid-90s where people were doing um, shareware apps and you know that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so I, I liked that process and I thought that it would be a good opportunity for us to try that um, on the web. And, and I actually, I had, before Basecamp, I built something on the web with David, my business partner, called Single File, which was a, a web-based application to keep track of your book collection. And we loved that. We loved making that. And we were making a little bit of money on that. And so we were sort of in this product mindset. Like we learned all these things about doing work for clients. We've been doing work for clients. And we felt like, well, if, we, if we're trying to sell our services, um, it might be nice to have some proof that we know what we're talking about here. So let's, you know, let's turn this into something and see what happens. And it, we didn't know that it would happen like it happened. We didn't know that, you know, 10 years later, Basecamp would be doing, you know, double-digit million-dollar, that's as specific as I'll be, but double-digit million-dollar revenue and profits. I mean, it's a big-time product used by millions of people around the world, and, and it's, a, it's a big deal. We had no idea that was ever going to happen. But after we put it on the market and threw some prices on it and tried it out just to see what would happen, um, you know, it, it, within a year, it became clear that there was something going on here that was that was good, and we just kept uh, doubling down and, and focusing on more of our energy on that until we could focus all of our energy on it. When do you know that it's it's the time to to make that change? Like, is it because you know you end up with the amount of work that you need to do to maintain means that you have to release people from other projects, and it naturally goes that way? Or do you do you just make that decision? Do you like we'll get to a certain point and then we'll we'll switch over and, and do something else? I, um, I think it's a couple things. Number one is what do you enjoy doing? And we were really starting to enjoy making this product more than we were enjoying doing client work. So that that kept um, piling on itself, and we kept feeling like we really like this more. Um, and then the money was there. Um, you know, we're we're charging for the product. We've been charging for the product since day one. And uh, we was making enough money to support us. And so it was making enough money to support us, and we enjoyed it more. The decision actually was very easy at that point. It was very obvious. There was, there was no other possibility, um, really. It was like, hey, we like this more, and we can make money doing it. Why not do this? Um, now, we didn't go into it that way. Again, it just sort of happened that way. And that's – we basically had evidence that it was real before we shut down the other part of our business um, so we didn't take a lot of risk on, really. I mean, if, if Basecamp had not have worked, um, we'd probably still be a, a, um, a web design company doing website design. Maybe we'd have a small thing on the side. Maybe Basecamp would be generating 30% of our business. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it just became obvious at a certain point that the enjoyment and the money lined up, and, and then you you do that. How did this shift over time, or if it did, did it change the company culture at all? The company was very small back then. Um, it still is relatively small, but uh, we were four. When we launched Basecamp, we were four people. Um, and um, about a year later, we hired our fifth person. So the culture didn't really change because we were so small. I think you know, if we had 50 or 60 people at that time, that would be a very big culture shift. But when it's just four or five people, like, there is no culture. It's just like the people. It's the four or five people. It's just that's all it is. Um, 
And culture is something I think that you, you know, I mean, technically there's culture in a company of that small too, but it's really the personalities at that point. Um, and, th and that didn't change. Um, uh, but you know, as the company gets bigger, things are, things change. But I think making that transition that had we been 20 or 30 or 40 people would have been a much more challenging situation. So like the, the revenue of the, of the stuff that you make, it comes through people paying for your stuff, which seems like these days to seem like a more and more outlandish thing for some reason. Like when you see people creating products now like applications or software services and they're all free and there doesn't seem to be a business model, what do you think about that when you see it considering how long you've been doing this and, and how well the company has grown? Well, I think you have to question their um... – you know, what's, what's their motivation? So, uh, if you're trying to build something to be acquired, um, then maybe you don't have to worry about revenue because, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if, if you're just looking to be acquired. Um, if you have a hit product that a lot of people use and you can ride out whatever you have until your acquirer comes around, then that's one thing. But I mean, that just seems like buying a lottery ticket. The odds are so stacked against you that that, I just question why so many people would, would play those odds. Um, it works for some, some, just like some people win the lottery, but it's very hard and, and, and it's a lot of luck involved and um, it's very rare. So I, I, I get up, the thing that bugs me most, frankly, is not, not the motivation of the owners so much. Because um, I, I understand it's, 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 it's you know, if, if you're going to be acquired for a few million bucks or more, like that's exciting as hell, obviously. I mean, people want money and that's a great way to get it if that's what you want. Um, but what bugs me is how customers are often thrown under the bus. Um, and that to me seems like a terrible trend where a company makes something, they acquire customers, customers in order to buy something have to trust the company that like the product's going to be good and they're going to get support and all those things. Um, they're going to be around. Customers put their data in these different systems and and learn the system, put their time into learning the systems and the whole thing. And, um, and then, you know, the, the company gets bought a year later and the product gets killed. And, you know, the, everyone looks at a lot of people in the tech world, look at that as a success. I think it's a terrible failure. I think it's a horrible thing for a bunch of people, um, who trusted this thing, uh, and, and put their data in it and spent time with it for it just to go away because two people are rich now. Uh, or one person is rich now, or a few investors are rich now. It just seems like such a, a lopsided um, thing, and I think our industry is, is is way worse off because of it. I think that it gets good press, it gets exciting press when people are bought out for big amounts of money. But the people who are hurt most are the, are the customers, and and I think that in terms of business, you know, if if you're you're in business to hurt customers, like that's not really a business. That's that's a terrible place to be. I I, I can't imagine. Um, running something, knowing right up, up front that I want to abandon my customers immediately if, if certain money comes around. It just doesn't seem right to me. Because then I guess as a user, users, all we're doing is just moving towards the big companies. Like if you want to use a cool email app, well, one day it's just going to get bought by Google, you know, that sort of thing. So you, you end up just, you try and find something that works for you, but eventually all you're doing is just being pushed towards the big, like five companies or something. Yeah, I think that might be true. That probably is true. But but what's worse is that every I, I think that every time a company is a small company is acquired rapidly, um, and their product gets killed, 
um, it does the rest of the industry a disservice and the rest of small businesses a disservice because at a certain point, if customers are burned so frequently by using new company software or new company service because it gets bought out or sold off or whatever, they're not going to trust small companies anymore. They're not going to trust independent software developers anymore. They're not going to trust anything unless it comes from the big guys. And uh, that's, I think, a terrible outcome. Um, it's going to reduce choice, and uh, I, I just think it's going to hurt everybody. So, um, and it, bum- it just bums me out. You know, that's the one thing that bums me out. I, I can't, again, I can't blame a founder for wanting to get rich. Like a lot of people in life want to get rich, and this is a good way to do it if you have a software tool and you know the right people and whatever. So, I, I understand the impulse. I understand the human side of that, but. I think that the ramifications often damage a lot more people than it helps, and it's, I think that's just a shame. Because I guess, you know, if you, let's say, over your career as an individual working hard, you make $10 million, and you make that through your company that you've worked in forever, and that's how you retire. I guess in, for some people, that's that's even greater than getting the $50 million buyout or something, right? Because it's something you've done and you've created and built over time and have seen it through to, to its end. I guess there's a certain joy in that that can't be found for some. Yeah, in my mind, that's that's the way I'd like to do it. Um, and again, this is just my opinion and, and my you know I, I I'm not here to tell people how to live that sort of thing. You know, everyone's got their own thing. But for me personally, that's a more rewarding life, which is to create something with lasting value that a lot of people love and depend on and trust, and we deliver on that. Um, over time, over 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it might be, that's that's the kind of stuff that I believe in, and, and I want to create those things for other people to believe in. Um, and so I'm a big fan of stability in that in that way. Uh, and it, it's just not really a – stability doesn't really seem like a tech virtue these days um, unless you're one of the big companies. Um, so I, I'd like to show that it's possible as a smaller company as well. I want to take a very quick break uh, just to thank one of our sponsors, but I have loads loads of other stuff that I'd like to talk to you about today. So this episode of Command Space is brought to you by the fantastic people over at Squarespace, who are the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. You can get yourself a 10% discount and a free trial. So you get 10% off your first purchase and a free trial by going to squarespace.com and using the offer code TALLYHO11. I love Squarespace, and I think you will too. I've been using them myself for years and years and years, long before they were ever kind enough to help support the work that I do on the shows, because they, to me, are just the place that I want to put my web stuff. I don't have to worry about Squarespace sites just going down, like because I have too, like if I was lucky to get too many people come and visit my site, because they do excellent caching and all of that stuff. And there's, you know, their servers are rock solid. I don't have problems like that with Squarespace. And it's not stuff that I have to worry about either. I don't have to worry about going and finding a hosting provider and installing, uh, you know, like a just installing stuff onto it like WordPress or whatever. It's because that's not stuff that I really know how to do. But I don't have to worry about it because Squarespace takes care of it all for me. And they do it with fantastic tools. It's not like you get substandard tools this way. In, in my opinion, some of the stuff that they do is better than what anybody else does regardless. They have absolutely beautiful templates they're award-winning they look absolutely fantastic and you get the ability to tweak and craft the template to look exactly you want like changes to fonts you can change some of the layout stuff you can change the colors of the text and, and all of that fun stuff if you want to as well to really create your own space online they have a fantastic support team 
in case you get stuck with anything or if you need any help at all. And they're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have over 70 employees dedicated to customer support. They're really design focused. Not only are their templates fantastic looking, so is all their CMS stuff in the you know around around the back where you get to tweak what goes on with your site, all of that stuff. I love it. You can also add e-commerce to their platform too. If you want to set up a shop and sell stuff, you can do that in just a few minutes. The best way to take a look at Squarespace is to go and take a look at it. So go sign up for a free trial. You don't need any credit card needed to do this. And you can start building a website straight away. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure that you use the code TALLYHO11. It's going to get you 10% off your first purchase and it will also help show your support for Command Space. Thanks t- so much to Squarespace for supporting all of 5 by 5 They give you everything that you need to create an exceptional website. So, Mr. Freed, you have millions of users that use your product. I don't think I can imagine that sort of pressure. <laughs> I imagine it gets, sometimes it's a bit like, oh, my God, so many people don't do anything wrong. <laughs> uh, it's motivation more so than pressure. I mean, there's pressure to, to perform and to deliver and to deliver to high capacity and reliability and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we want to make sure that our, our apps are available as close to 100% of the time as possible. And we have a great team who's dedicated to doing that and making sure that our customers are well taken care of. We have a great team dedicated to doing that as well. Um, but but I, I love the uh, the opportunity to deliver for people uh, at that scale um, and do it with a relatively small team. 37 Signals has 41 people. And, uh, you know, all things considered, that's a tiny, tiny company um, for dealing with uh, that many customers for, for having that many customers for being in business for that long. Um, and it's a thrill to be able to deliver at a high level um, and and meet expectations and exceed expectations with such a small team for so many different customers in so many different places. You mentioned that you have a small team and, and that is very small for the, the work that you guys do. Do you, do you actively try to keep the company small? Absolutely. That's uh, a core value here, which is um, keep the company as small as possible for as long as possible. Um, we have revenues and profits to support a company many, many times our size. Um, we could go off and hire 100 people in the next month. if We you know we could do anything we wanted in terms of growing our team size. Um, and I, we just don't want to do it. Um, I don't want to do it. I don't want that kind of company here. People here don't want to work for that kind of company. People here come to work here because it's a small company, um, although we've gotten significantly larger over the years. I mean, we started out, like I said, 15 years ago, it's four or five people. Um, but it, it's a very important thing for us because I think that um, culturally it's very difficult to maintain a really strong core uh, and culture when, you, when you're much bigger, when you hire frequently. It's very hard to, to get people into the culture of the company um and frankly i think when you have too many people around you invent work for them to do um and uh i don't want to invent work for people to do i want people to do work that matters that's important not just work to keep them busy um and i've seen this in many places that i've worked and i've and clients we've had over the past and friends of mine that i know who work in environments where a lot of people are doing work that doesn't matter um because they need to stay busy and that just sort of bugs me too so I think there may be things that we're missing out on because we're smaller that we can't take on certain opportunities we can't we can't do um, certain ideas we can't make happen because we don't have enough people. But 
I'm comfortable with with that sacrifice. So we spoke about how you know the the projects and the products that you developed internally became bigger than your company. You know they they started to be the products that that you sold. Um, Ruby on Rails, I guess, is kind of a similar type of thing, right? You developed it in-house to help you develop the stuff that you made, but then it grew way beyond that. I mean, what what is your opinion now looking back at, at Ruby on Rails and how that has become a thing all, all onto itself? Well, so yeah, Rails, Rails came out of Basecamp. Um, Basecamp was the first ever Rails app, but really Basecamp wasn't even a Rails app. It was just Basecamp. And then we extracted some stuff from Basecamp, which we then turned into Rails um, understanding that we, if we wanted to do this again, we shouldn't repeat ourselves and, and have to rebuild a bunch of stuff that we could reuse. Um, so David um, basically built Rails um, off of off of a lot of the infrastructure from Basecamp and then open sourced it. Uh, and you know we didn't know what was going to happen with that either. It just seemed like the right thing to do because infrastructure is not our game. It's not what we're great at, um, and in general the best infrastructure seems to be open source work. You know, um, almost all of our web servers, actually our web servers are open source, you know, database is open source, uh, languages are open source, and, and they get better and better and better and better when you have all these different people with all these different problems solving them together in the same code base and just making things stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and our products today are better because the fundamental infrastructure of our products, which is Rails, was open sourced because Rails got significantly better. People focused more on speed and security and capabilities and all these things that we never could have done. We didn't have enough people to do. Um, everything got better. So we're big believers in open source, and that was a great way for us to begin our sort of move in that direction. Um, again, we didn't know what it would become. and We didn't know that it would lead to and basically an entire economy built around it, um, hundreds of thousands of people using it, probably hundred thousand jobs I have no idea you know ultimately how many people are employed writing rails who but what's cool is that there's a lot of people who picked up rails for the first time as programmers maybe someone was a designer but they picked up rails and they became a programmer um, a lot of people were, weren't able to do that before rails made that possible so that's what's really particularly exciting about about rails um, also and um, anyway that that's just something that happened uh, again not really planned out just happened and it took on a life of its own and uh here we are now when you have something like that do you ever like you know you you, you're working on a project or whatever and you're using rails and it's just a thing that you do do you ever have that moment where it's kind of like oh hang on a minute (laughs) we made this (laughs) it's it's funny um uh david actually you know david invented it he he has these moments occasionally um so whenever we would maybe spin up a new app, like if we're working on something brand new and you'd spin up a new app in Rails 4 or something like that, he'd be like, whoa, this is really good because it's not often that you spin up a new app. And a lot of the old apps that you're working on have been around for a while, and so the code base is a little bit older, and it's kind of nice to start fresh sometimes and, and, and see what you get. So he sort of has those reactions, and you know, you'd have to ask him how he really feels about the whole thing, seeing that he invented it and it's you know become such a big thing. Um, I look at it sort of in awe. It's kind of an amazing thing that, that it became so big and so important and so useful, um, especially when it's just something that it was just kind of happened. It was extracted from something else that we did. But I think it's a good example of, um, of the idea that um, you can never make just one thing. Everything that you make has a byproduct. Um, you may not be able to see the byproduct, 
but it's there. And Rails was a byproduct of making Basecamp. Um, and, uh, you know, we turned it into something much greater than just simply a byproduct. It's, it has a life of its own now. But I think it's a good example of what, what you can do when you extract something from something else and turn it into its own thing and give it its own life and, and see what happens. So as well as all of this, you are also a writer and you, you have a blog on the 37 Signal site called Signal Versus Noise. Why did you set up this blog? Like where, where did it come from? Have you, have you always been a, a blogger? Were you a blogger before this or was this your first attempt? Uh, yeah, this is our first blog. Uh, God, I think we launched it in 2000 or something like that. Um, maybe 2000. Um, originally it was built on, I'm trying to remember what it was called now. Um, anyway, I can't remember, but there was some old uh, PHP script thing. Um, oh man, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. But, uh, the, the idea behind it was that we found ourselves internally talking about a lot of things that had nothing to do with our own specific business, but had something to do with the industry, either opinions or points of view or sharing other people's work or seeing something cool or reading an article that was neat or whatever it might be. And we kept sharing these things amongst ourselves and we're like, you know, we should just share this stuff out in the out in the open, out in the public. I mean, if we're interested in it, there's probably other people out there that are interested in it. There are like minds out there who, who might even be able to contribute something back with a comment or whatever. And we just sort of started doing it. And, um, again, it's just, you know, it was an idea and we kept doing it and kept at it. And I think it's another sort of, um, example of what happens when you just commit yourself to something for a long period of time. A lot of things just end up working. If you, if you can, if you can hold out and keep going, and keep investing in something and keep pushing forward on something and keep believing in something like it's going to stick around. So not everything's like that, of course, but I think you have a pretty good shot at it if you really believe in it. So we've been doing this for, you know, almost 14 years now, I think, um, if I remember we started it correctly and it's become really our most important marketing, um, sort of vehicle. I don't know what you want to call it, but we don't really do any traditional marketing. We don't advertise. We don't buy we don't buy ads anywhere. We don't do SEO stuff. We don't uh, have salespeople. We don't do anything that you would normally do to get new customers in the door. Um, we just, uh, uh, you know, write and share, and you know, the books we've written and things like that. And that's sort of what brings people to our doorstep. And then they like what we have to say. And then we might have some things to sell them. And then they they find out about those things and they might buy those things. And it's it's been a great thing for us. And it's really fun to share what's on your mind and make sure your opinion is is out there and is heard. How do you choose what to, to personally write on Signal versus Noise? Um, it usually comes down to, I've usually said it or thought it because of something else. So oftentimes, when I, I used to do a lot of public speaking. I've cut way back because I'm just sort of tired of it. But when I used to do it a lot, um, I would be up on stage talking about something. Someone would ask a question. I do a lot of Q&A stuff. Someone would ask a question and and I'd say something and I'd be like, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way before or that was a great question and I just sort of elaborate on the blog when I got home. So that was a great source of material for me. Um, also just observations and things I do. I try and be a pretty reflective person about, you know, how I think and why I think the way I think and what I believe in and what I've changed my mind about. And there's endless amounts of material around those sorts of things. The key is, and it's hard, but you try not to be self-indulgent. You try not to you know, you try not to say stuff that's so, um, about you and it's, you know, you don't ever, I don't mean to ever do that. Sometimes I probably do, but try to be careful about that and try to extract it to a level where it's a lesson. Um, and not just a personal experience, but I think a lesson other people can relate to or other people have, have dealt with. 
Um, but, but, you know, I'd like to be getting back into writing more about design and more about product decisions and stuff. I just haven't been doing that lately and I'd like to get more back into that. And I think next year with some stuff we're planning on doing, um, there'll be more opportunity for us to, to do that. So it's what's top of mind. It's what's relevant, what's current, what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about. That's the kind of stuff I write about. I don't, I don't have a schedule. Um, I, I, if I don't write something for three weeks, that's fine. If I write six posts in four days, that's fine. It just, whenever I have something to say, I'll, I'll put it up on the blog and share it. So you mentioned about uh, writing books, and I want to talk about that with you in just a moment. But let me just take a, a quick second to thank our second sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Shutterstock.com. This is where you're going to find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and over 1 million video clips. You can start searching over at Shutterstock, and you're going to find the perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or just about any other creative project. Shutterstock, they give you an absolutely global image collection that, to help you find images for the, your projects, whether that be maybe you just need a, one image you want to have for a blog post that you're working on. They can help you with that. Maybe you are a person that creates advertisements or maybe you're working on some... Maybe you want to have images in all of your blog posts or maybe you want to have images for a podcast artwork or something like that. You want to have that in your show notes every week. Well, then you can choose between image packs or monthly subscription packages too. You never have to compromise with Shutterstock. They will help fit exactly whatever it is you need. And every time that you visit Shutterstock, you're guaranteed to find something new since they add over 20,000 new images every single day and 12,000 videos every week. It's much more affordable than you think. They don't charge you for higher resolution files. If you take a file in a certain resolution and then you need it in a higher resolution later, well, you just come back and get it. You don't have to pay again for it. You buy it once and it's yours. As you're searching around on Shutterstock, you can easily create and share pictures via light boxes. So you select pictures that you like, you add them to a light box, and then you can review your favorites later and get the ones that you want. And you can also do this on their iPad app as well. They have enhanced license access, they have 24-hour support, and they have dedicated account reps in case that you need them. And they also, as well as just images and videos, they have a huge library of vectors, icons, and infographic templates too, if that's the sort of stuff that you need. So go sign up for a free browsing account now at Shutterstock.com, and you can see all the amazing images and media that they have on file. And there's no credit card needed to do this. And when you find the images that you like and you decide to purchase, use the code cmd 11 13. So that's CMD1113. And that's going to get you 25% off any package. And you'll find all of the links and information that you need in the show notes for today's episode, which are at 5x5.tv slash CMDSPACE slash 69. Thanks so much to Shutterstock for their support of the show. So what is Rework? Rework was um, a book we put out about four years ago about everything that we learned over the past 10 years or so about running a business. Um, all of our theories on hiring and marketing and keeping it small and deciding what products to do and culture and support and speaking and all the things that we know and, and learned over 10 years, we put it into a book form and put it out. I think it was 88 separate essays. Um, and uh, it was everything we knew. And uh, we put it out into a book and it did real well. Sold, I think, nearly 300,000 copies of the book so far. So it's really been a huge success. Um, and uh, it, it was really fun to do. And then we just uh, did it again with our, our latest book, uh, Remote, which came out about a week or so ago. What is it about Rework that you think has made it such a success? 
Um, well, for, for one, it's very fast and easy to read. I think a lot of business books are horribly bloated and take way too long to read. And so the fact is that you can finish rework in like three hours, which means a lot more people are going to read it from cover to cover, and they're going to get a lot more out of it. They're going to tell more people about it because it's a great experience to read a book in three hours and be done with it and, and learn something new. So I think there's that part of it, big part of it, in fact. Um, I also think it's very direct. Um, there's no fluff. There's no filler. Um, it's just straight out essays about what we think, and they're usually a page or two each. Um, and it's comprehensive in that it covers a variety of different topics that small business owners or entrepreneurs or people who work for small businesses or people who are in big businesses that want to hear about different ways of doing things. Like They can pick a lot out of this book. Um, really quickly and, uh, and, and take some of these ideas and hopefully apply them to their own business. I think it's also, um, it's, it's sort of, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a book that goes against conventional thinking in a lot of different ways in terms of all the way from the fact that it's short, you can read it quickly, to the material in it. And I think that strikes a nerve with people. It's very honest and, uh, and um, it's, it, it reads as if you're, you're speaking it. It's not a academic technical thing i think it's it's very very practical and i think that helps quite a bit too what inspired you to write the book did you have some of the content already done and decided you wanted to put it into a book form or did you like right we're going to do this thing and, and then go on it yeah it, a lot of it was already written actually it was um i don't know what percentage maybe 60 percent or something had already been published on our blog we, we rewrote a lot of those pieces but the core ideas were on the blog, but they were scattered across many years' worth of blog posts. And, and we just thought it would be a good idea to pull it all together, plus write new material, plus rewrite some of that other stuff and give it a coherent voice and, and turn it into a package that someone could pick up, read. It could be delivered to somebody. They could give it away to someone else. You know, it, it, It's so much more accessible than you know, 88 blog posts spread across you know, eight years or ten years with a bunch of stuff in between. So it was about packaging the material up in a way that was easy to, easy to digest and to share. And hey, not bad to be a New York Times bestseller. I mean, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good thing. You know? Yeah, that was fun. That, I mean, that, that, that lends a lot of credibility. Um, it was also, you know, it, it made us money too, um, which is something I think that the book publishing industry typically doesn't think that you can make. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of times in the publishing industry, you're told that you write a book for publicity, for exposure, whatever, and you know, the making money is, is not really, you know, it's not for authors to do. But for us, it, it made us money too, which was nice, um, which helped justify a lot of the time we spent on it, although we still would have written it anyway. But it was a nice surprise, and uh, that was good. Were you self-published? Uh, no, not that book. Uh, our previous book called Getting Real was self-published. We published it as a PDF, um, also as a paperback eventually, um, and now it's free, available online. But... Um, Rework was, uh, we went through a traditional publisher, uh, Crown, which is an imprint of Random House, and uh, we met with a bunch of publishers in New York and a few others and interviewed a bunch, and, and Crown was the most interested and interesting for us, and so they, they were the ones who published the book. I'd totally forgotten about Getting Real. Yeah, getting Real, I still think Getting Real is our best book we've ever written. Um, it's from 2006, I think, is when we t published it, um, and it was everything we learned about up until that point about writing software. So Getting Real is really about building an app and building software and selling software and designing software and that kind of stuff. And then Getting Real was all about building a company. Um, and then Remote is all about how to make that company work with people who are all over the place. So it's sort of, sort of a, a natural progression of topics. 
So you mentioned Remote, which is the recent follow-up. Like it's as you say, it's pretty much just gone on sale. Um, so maybe you know, maybe it hasn't reached all of our listeners yet. So what can people expect from Remote? Yeah, Remote is a book um, that's all about teaching you, teaching you as an employee or as you as an employer, um, how to make remote working work for your business. So remote working basically means people don't have to come to the office. Um, it doesn't mean people have to live eight thousand miles away, although they could. But it could also mean people who are in your same city who prefer to work from home or in co-working spaces or whatever. Um, it's all the things we've learned about how to do that. And we've learned a lot about it because we're 40 people and 13 of us live in Chicago and work in Chicago. But the other 27 or so or 28 people live in 25 or so different places around the world. Um, <laughs> that's our campfire. Room. <laughs> Hang on, let me quit that. <laughs> all right. I'll um, cut that out. <laughs> we have some fun sounds in Campfire. All right. So um, uh, actually, you could leave it in if you want. It's kind of funny. Anyway, point <laughs> is we have this, we have this, you know, we've learned a lot about how to make remote working work. We have designers who work remote. We have programmers who work remote. We have customer service people who work remote. We have our ops team who works remote. And it's, it's a challenge to figure out how to make all this stuff work when you can't see people every day and you don't have a chance to sit, into a, sit in a meeting with them every day or every week or whatever it is. So we've learned a ton of techniques about what works, what doesn't, how to get it working at your own company if you want to give it a shot. Some of the pitfalls, we address those head on. Um, we, we write the book from two perspectives, one being the employer who's interested in maybe giving their employees a shot at this, and also from the employee's perspective about how can they convince their boss to let them try it. And um, just like Rework, you can finish it in three hours. It's a series of essays real quick, um, so you can get back to work pretty quickly. And um, uh, that's the book. Really happy about it. I think it's um, it's it's the first book of its kind, really, to address these types of issues so comprehensively. One of my favorite things about both of the books are the great illustrations and stuff from a friend of the show, Mike Rohde. They're great. I, I love them. It really brings everything to, to life for me. Yeah, Mike is awesome. Um, I met Mike, I think at South by Southwest many years ago, and he was doing some sketch notes, and I just loved his work, and so we we hired him to do the first to do rework for us and 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 uh, it was a huge success and so we brought him back to do a remote and he he just he just killed it on this project too he's he's such a talented guy and such a humble solid guy it's really fun to work with him so you had sort of three books now really do you think this is something that you're going to continue are there going to be other books in your future do you think well uh, nothing's planned so for us it's always about do we have something to say yeah um, there's a lot of business book writers who are prolific business book writers, and I don't really understand how they can be because I don't think you can amass enough knowledge within a year or two to write a whole new book, you know, about a whole new topic. Um, so for us, we have to amass enough new material, we have to experience enough new things or or whatever to to have a topic worth writing about. And so right now we're we're all tapped out, um, but we'll, we'll see what happens as as time goes on and we do new things and and, and learn new stuff and. Um, if we have something to share that's book worthy, um, we'll pull it together into a book and, and we'll see where we go from there. But we don't, we don't plan it out. It just has to like, I remember David mentioned the remote idea about a year ago and he's like, you know, I think we should write a book on this. And, and, you know, he'd already started writing some essays and we had a few things on signal versus noise, but most of these essays in this book are brand new never been seen before. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we couldn't have written this book five, six years ago just because we didn't have as much experience with remote working as we do now. And so it was, it was time. The time was right. And so we put it out and we'll see what the time, what topic is next. And when the time is right for that next topic, we'll put a new book out maybe. 
So, Mr. Freed, where where is a good place for people to go to to keep up with what you're up to and what Thirty Seven Signals are up to too? Um, the best place there's a couple places. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, just Jason Freed, F R I E D. So just at Jason Freed. Um, we also have a Twitter account for a company, so at Thirty Seven Signals. Um, if you go to Signal versus Noise, which is our blog, you can follow along with our thoughts. That's at 37signals.com slash SVN. Or if you search on Google, just Signal versus Noise, you'll you'll find it there too. Those are the best places to kind of really stay current with what we're doing. We have a newsletter as well, but um, you can um, if you, if you follow the Twitter feeds and the blog, you're you're pretty well up to date. And that's uh, that's the best place to to check out new announcements and ideas and things we launch. I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been been really, really great to talk to you. It's been interesting to hear how your company has changed over time. It's uh, it's quite a story you've got. Well, it's it's been fun. It's been a great story, and I, I hope it's just the beginning. I hope that um, we can do you know fifteen more years, and fifteen more years after that, and fifteen more years <laughs> after that, maybe, and 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 keep doing it. Um, I, I'd love to see if it's possible for us. I, I had. The companies that I admire are the ones that have been around for a long time and stuck with it. I, I think that they're the ones who do the best work. So I, I want to be one of those companies. So we'll keep we'll keep pushing and see what happens. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you want to catch the show notes, as I mentioned earlier, you can go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 69. So you'll find the links to everything that we discussed today. Thanks again to Jason for joining me. I am Mike Hurley. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E on social networks. If you want to follow along with me there, you can. And I'll be back with you again on the next episode of Command Space. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.